Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to the Cinematic Crypt, a motion picture podcast hosted by Movie John's Old Sport and Classic Corner, Rosalie Kicks, otherwise known as Betzina Belfry. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Before we descend into the crypt, I will begin with reading my obituary, a notice of what I have been up to since we last spent time together. Creepies. One of the crypt dwellers, Roderick Towers, mentioned that he enjoys to hear what I have been watching. Therefore, I will try to remember to share some of the flicks that I have dug up that may not end up being dissected, at least not right away. I recently reacquainted myself with Robert Stack and have been diving into his filmography. Many of you may know Robert from his famed TV hosting gig, Unsolved Mysteries, which aired from 1987 until 2002 with Robert narrating. Robert made an appearance in my living room via the Douglas Sirk 1956 film, Written on the Wind, in which he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. I'm in love with you, so much so that I want to marry you. Universal International presents Rock Hudson as Mitch Wayne, who owed everything to the oil-rich Hadleys. Lauren Bacall, who had married Kyle Hadley too soon. Robert Stack as headstrong Kyle Hadley. Dorothy Malone as Kyle's sister. In a tense, frank drama woven of the raw realism of life itself. This was a wild movie, and I loved it. It was this film that led me to do a deeper dive of Robert's filmography. And I am now presently watching The Untouchables, a Desilu television production that kicked off in 1959 until 1963, in which Stack played Prohibition agent Elliot Ness. As for newer media, I highly recommend checking out the TV program streaming on Paramount Plus, School Spirits. Maddie finds herself in the afterlife, stuck in her high school attempting to solve her disappearance with the help of some other specters. I love my teen dramas, and this one is fantastic. Shout out to Crypt Dweller, Nick Nelson, for providing me with the means to watch this. Other than meeting some new dead pals, I have been burying myself in books, my goblins and ghouls. I recently finished reading The Immortal Count, written by Arthur Lenning. Overall, I enjoyed the book quite well. It did, however, leave me wanting more. I need to visit with Bela Lugosi soon, for I miss having him around. The writing within the book was rather dense and provided a thorough filmography of Lugosi's pictures, but I found myself wishing the author would have delved into more of the making of the movies rather than just providing synopsis. My guess is that this sort of information may have been hard to come by, but if you're a fan, you should definitely read this book. My favorite part was learning that Bella most definitely would have loved the cinematic crypt and adored your favorite little gravedigger. I loved reading how he paid a visit to the author's basement laboratory and how much he admired the author's love of his pictures. Bella would have loved my laboratory too, I presume, and probably would have tried to pinch my bottom too, or maybe bite my neck. I would rather the latter, creepies. In reading, though, I was reminded about a dream that I've had for quite some time of creating a Bela Lugosi zine shaped as a coffin. 
So many schemes and so little time creeps. But maybe this is something I can work on in the future. Speaking of my future, for those of you goblins and ghouls that have been following along, I have set a date for my grand fantastical magical escape, or otherwise known as my reinvention. And you can follow along with all of my escape plans via my Substack newsletter, Sunday Matinee. Visit substack.com to subscribe. I'll post a link in the show notes. I am Dracula. It's really good to see you. I don't know what happened to the driver and my luggage and... Well, and with all this, I, I thought I was in the wrong place. I bid you welcome. Castle of Dr. Paul Bearer. <laughs> so nice to sit out of the uneasy chair in my unliving room. <laughs> Run a little late today, so I uh, stopped by one of those quickie food joints and picked up, uh, thought I'd try some chicken McMaggots today. <laughs> well, let me see how these things taste anyway. <clears throat> mm, very tasty. <laughs> so while I enjoy my chicken McMaggots, maybe you can enjoy our Horrible old movie for today, and believe me, it's really horrible, or my name isn't Dr. Paul Barrow. <laughs> Creepies, you just heard the gravelly voice of Dr. Paul Bearer, a horror-hosting fiend hailing from St. Petersburg, Florida. Before we get to our main attraction, let's take a stroll in the cemetery, shall we? Join me, goblins and ghouls, on a trip to the graveyard to pay respects to horror hosts from days gone by in a segment I've entitled Grave Time. I'm Barbara Callahan. A week ago today, Channel 44 lost a good friend, a man who for more than 22 years was a local television legend, Dick Benick, known to millions of fans as Dr. Paul Bearer. I'm here on what Dr. Paul referred to as his tenement castle. It's empty now. The chair, the suit of armor, the fireplace, the piano won't be used anymore. But his memories live on. Today, please join us for a look back at the character Dick created, the products he endorsed, and some of his funniest moments that made us all fans of Dr. Paul Bearer. It's rare that anyone has a proclamation named in their honor, but when Dr. Paul celebrated his 20th anniversary on Channel 44, the city of Tampa made October 30th, 1993, Dr. Paul Bearer Day. Dr. Paul Bearer was a wiry, goateed undertaker with a cadaverous smile. With his hair parted down the middle, a scar on the side of his pallid face, he was draped in a funeral director attire and would go on to become a TV sensation. He resided in what he referred to as the Tentament Castle and served as the host of WTOG, Channel 44's program, Creature Feature, in St. Petersburg, Florida. Dr. Bearer, otherwise known as Dick Bennett, got his start hosting in High Point, North Carolina in 1965. In 1973, he would join a station in Florida where he would continue his persona as a horror host, 
His program of a double bill of creature features would often have top readings during the 1 p.m. time slot, and inevitably, he would become Florida's favorite ghoul, who was equally admired by teens and adults. Over 22 years, Dr. Paul hosted more than 1,500 of what he called his horrible old movies. His creature feature lasted through six presidents, two wars, and thousands of the worst movies possible or his name wasn't Dr. Paul Bearer. Now, Michael Jordan had Wheaties, Bo Jackson had Nike, but when it came to product endorsements, Dr. Paul Bearer had them all dead to rights. Dr. Paul liked bringing these products to you because for him, going to the grocery store was more than just hearsing around. Don't know about you, but uh, quite frankly, I work up quite an appetite watching these horrible old things. <laughs> so I thought today I might try that a uh, new cereal I've been hearing a lot about. It's put out by the Kellogg's company, and it's called Ghost. Siri, <laughs> and uh, let me see if I can get the box and go make myself a bowl of Ghost cereal. I thought I might enjoy mixing up a little bit of uh, shrink lemonade. Siri, <laughs> let me try that. Say, <laughs> so that's pretty tasty. That shrink lemonade's not bad at all. <laughs> On the other hand, I'm beginning to feel a little strange. <laughs> Son of a gun, what is happening here? <laughs> I'm shrinking. My goodness. Boy, they, when they said shrink lemonade, they meant it, didn't they? <laughs> wow, what am I going to do now? In conducting my research, what I loved about Mr. Benick was learning about his youth. His father was a druggist and was hopeful that his son would follow in his footsteps. However, at the age of five, Mr. Benick attended a magic show in which he saw a woman sawed in half. His life was changed. By the age of 12, he began to perform his own magic shows out of his garage. Mr. Benick dreamed of one day running away and joining a traveling magic act. Well, after high school, he did. His career started as a stage assistant in John Calvert's Magic and Model Show, and later, Dick would become the host of the Midnight Horror Show which worked out quite swell since he happened to be a huge horror film fan, citing one of his favorite flicks as Frankenstein. After his magic escapades, he would find himself in radio, and then went on to work for a small television studio in Winston-Salem. The station had its own version of shock theater, featuring Count Shockula, and well, when the Count decided to quit, Mr. Benick asked for the job. Initially, though, he wasn't too pleased with the program. He was not a fan of the persona known as Count Shakula, who happened to be a living human skeleton, which Mr. Benick felt, frankly, didn't work. So he sponsored a contest asking the audience how Count Shakula should die. Well, of course, this is where the doctor comes in. The solution was to drive a stake through the heart of Count Shakula, and this was done by none other than Dr. Paul Bearer, who then proceeded to become the new host of the show. I dug up an old newspaper article that was published on a St. Petersburg website, St. Pete Catalyst, in 2020. They quoted Mr. Benick regarding how he came up with the idea of Dr. Paul Bearer, and here's what he said. Finding the look took some thought, Benick said. I went through all these magazines and I picked out what I liked about various characters to design my new character. The beard came from a Vincent Price movie, and quite frankly, I can't remember which one. Parting my hair down the middle, I stole from a guy in New York, TV radio horror host John Zacherly. The spats and the frock coat I just thought looked cool. I had to go to a beauty shop and get them to give me hair off the floor that matched my own to make the beard, because in those days, they wouldn't let me grow one. I loved learning how serious Dr. Paul Bearer took his hosting duties and that he used Zacherly as inspiration, utilizing wardrobe cues and his catchphrase of acknowledging the audience as, whatever you are. Zacherly is one of my favorite horror hosts, and you can hear more about him in a previous Cinematic Crypt episode 25. Ghost Connection!
Mr. Bennick was extremely organized and kept a file of every joke he ever used on air to avoid repeating the same funny too often. He also collected props and was known to have a 23-year-old collection of monster magazines that he would use for research and inspiration for the program. He was also known to tape 13 shows in one Saturday quite a professional. During the program, Dr. Paul Bear would invite his viewers inside the tenement castle, which was a painted brick wall, a fireplace, and decorated with a spider web that was also home to his co-host, a prop spider by the name of Spinjamin Bach, who also happened to be voiced by Mr. Bennick. Dr. Bear would sit in an overstuffed cushion chair where he would complete much of his monologues and introduce what he referred to as horrible old movies. Occasionally, he would rise from his coffin, croaking with a cigarette in hand. And sometimes, even guests would stop by. <laughs> okay. Well, there we go. Darn thing was about to stick on me. Well, hello. Well, good afternoon. Come in, whoever yes. you are. <laughs> are you Dr. Paul Bear? Yes. 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 Uh, do who, you... are, who are you? Oh, forgive me. Permit me to introduce myself. My name is Fang Sinatra. Fang Sinatra? Yes, but you can call me Blue Eyes. Blue Eyes. Yes. You ran, you ran the ad in the, in the Transylvania Times. Yes, yes. About, the, about the tomb for rent. Oh, I see. The upstairs room. It's an upstairs room you have. Yes, you, you don't know, have anything, perhaps, uh, a little lower down. Like what? Like uh, the basement. The basement? Or maybe even... You mean you want to live in the basement? Yeah, the lower the better. The show would be filled with gags, puns, and ridiculous shticks, such as a decapitated singing head. The doctor would often get rather famished during the show and would devour some interesting cuisines, such as Strangle's potato chips lice krispies or mcmaggots he would also take coffee breaks which consisted of smashing coffee cups with a hammer throughout his 22 years serving as a horror host he would make a number of live appearances at events particularly in the fall months to sign autographs and take photos with fans i loved learning that he traveled in a black 1963 cadillac hearse how divine. I also found it rather intriguing how loved he was with children, and that they were not the least bit scared of him, often requesting him to remove his glass eye, which he would cordially decline. He was known to say that the doctor may be horrible looking, but is not horrible. In fact, he was so kind he was known to often make public service announcements around Halloween regarding trick-or-treat safety. Before we close out the show, I'd like to remind you guys, tonight is Halloween, and I've always tried to pitch for a lot of safety around Halloween time, so rather than talk about me, let's talk about you for about a minute or so here, and uh, remind you that when you go trick-or-treating, trick-or-treating is for children, uh, not for teenagers, not for adults, it's for kids, and the kids ought to trick-or-treat in their own neighborhood, they ought to trick-or-treat only houses where the lights are on take a parent or an older person with you uh, remember don't run between the cars the drivers can't see you in those costumes you ought to carry a flashlight or have something reflective on the costumes and the main thing is when you don't eat a treat before the parents check it remember let the parents check your treat before you eat so the whole thing is to have a real safe and happy Halloween tonight and, uh, and that's when most folks are trick-or-treating some are doing it tomorrow afternoon but Try to stay in your own neighborhood with people you know and people that know you. And don't ever go up to a dark house to try to trick-or-treat. And you parents, leave the lights on if you want to be trick-or-treated. And when you're driving, watch out for little monsters that might run between the cars. Okay, that kind of wraps up our 20 years. So hang in there because we got a real fantastic movie coming up for you. It's a classic called War of the Worlds. And we'll get to that in just a couple of minutes, okay? <laughs> If you want to learn more about Dr. Paul Bearer, I suggest visiting the World Wide Web, as there are tons of great old clips, including him performing the Monster Mash with a topless dancer. I warn you, goblins and ghouls, it is unlike anything you have seen.
There is also a wonderful tribute segment that I've played clips from here on the show that his former television station aired shortly after his death. I will close out this segment with one of his unforgettable catchphrases. Until next time, grave time creepies, I'll be lurking for you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, are we to that point in the movie? Quite frankly, I didn't care for it, so I've been uh, pursuing a hobby, which of course I'd like to become a spirit medium, so I've been reading this book, Contacting the Spirit World by Manny Festation. (laughs) Wait a second, I think I've just about got it down here. All right, I think I've figured out how to do this, so let me see if I can try it. If there are any spirits out there, let them appear. If there are any spirits out there, let them appear. We're trying to make contact with the spirit world, as you can see. (laughs) If there are any spirits out there, let them appear. Son of a gun. Well, as you can see, we made contact with the spirit world. At least a bottle of old croak, anyway. (laughs) Well, now that I've successfully contacted the spirit world, let's see if you can make contact with the rest of our horrible old movie. (laughs) And now, our feature presentation. All right, film pal. Time to grab your cape and get uncomfortable. It is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program. Follow me, but watch your step as you descend down to the cinematic crypt. Today's episode will mark the third entry in the series, Double Trouble. Over the course of this series, I will examine four flicks in which there is not one, but two characters that the actor portrays. No need for the double take. Your eyes did not deceive. When it is double trouble, it is sure to be twice as fun. This episode will feature the 1935 motion picture, The Black Room, directed by Roy William Neal, and starring Marion Marsh, Robert Allen, Thurston Hall, Catherine DeMille, and our corpse of interest, Boris Karloff. Authentic relic of The Black Room, one of the most horrible legends that has ever come out of the Dark Ages. Imagine the Baron of an old castle. A baron who fascinates women with an almost hypnotic attraction. He loves them violently, and then he murders. I don't mean to frighten you, Tim, but Gregor's a monster. Don't you feel it? Every time he comes near me. I'm going to you to do one thing. Never allow yourself to be alone with him for a minute. Will you promise me that? Of course, Dad. Ask him what became of my sister. Your sister? Yes, and the other woman. Take him away. Ask him what becomes of all the women. Why are they never seen again? The Black Room would be released in 1935, four years after Boris Karloff's rise to popularity with Frankenstein in 1931. You may recall Goblins and Ghouls that Boris Karloff has been a visitor to the crypt previously in Episode 9 when I uncovered and dissected the 1958 film Frankenstein, 1970. Well, Doctor, an heir, my lord, and a brother for him. Twins. Twins? A toast. Let's drink to it. No, don't toast this birth. Do you all know how our family began? with twins, Brand and Wolfram, and it will end with twins. Brand the younger murdered his brother. His house began with murder. It will end the same way. Our picture opens in the late 18th century in an Austrian castle. Two sons have been born, twins, Gregor and Anton, to the Bergman barons. Immediately upon the birth of the twins, the Baron is concerned, for a curse awaits the brothers, a prophecy. So it is said that the younger shall kill the older 
in the black room of the Gothic castle. How pleasant. One way to ensure this does not occur is to simply seal up the room. May I offer a simple suggestion? You believe that the younger brother will kill the older in the black room? Yes, I do. Then the prevention is simple. Seal it up. There won't be any black room. Years pass, and the twins of corpse age, and they are seen at their mother's grave, donning particularly wild hair. Later, they are shown at their father's tombstone. And then flash forward to 20 years later, we now find Baron Gregor, played by Boris Karloff. He's become somewhat of a tyrant and rumored to be committing murder of local peasants' wives. His brother Anton, also played by Boris Karloff, has been out of the castle traveling Europe and after 20 years makes his gallant return to the small village. He first is seen at the Black Cat Inn, complete with an actual black cat, and creepies. I was immediately smitten with Boris's ensemble and his entourage. Anton is accompanied by a large dog that goes by the name Tor, played by Vaughn the Dog which in conducting my research, I have identified the breed as a Mastiff. Tor plays a major role in this film, despite him disappearing much after Act 1, but I'll get to that in a little bit. As for Anton's attire, he is dressed as one would expect for the time, long coat, waistcoat, and vest, breeches, but what especially caught my eye was a monocle that hung from his waistcoat and appeared to have a small handle. I was fond of this. From the moment he enters the inn, the rumors and chatter amongst the villagers begin. He looks like the Baron. Say, he does. Didn't the Baron have a brother who left here long ago? Yes. What's he come back for? Wonder Bergman is enough. Anton hears tales that his brother is despicable and a scoundrel, but refuses to believe the village gossip. As for the castle staff and the residents of the village, they find Anton a breath of fresh air. It does not take long for Anton to win their hearts. He also takes a liking to Thea, played by Marion Marsh, and daughter of a family advisor, Colonel Hassel. Anton's likability to the village, staff, and now Thea boils the blood of his brother Gregor especially since he has been attempting to woo Thea, despite her heart truly belonging to Lieutenant Albert Lucen, played by Robert Allen. However, Gregor seems to want to set this aside and be peaceful with his brother. At least, this is what he wants us to believe. Creepies. My subjects haven't been so unruly. I'd have proclaimed a great festival, Your Honor. They don't deserve a feast, much as you do. Sit down, Anton. I've ordered some wine for you. Thanks for coming back to our home. It's been lonely for me here, but now we can divide the responsibilities. Come in. They also choose to forget the black room and the silly prophecy. They're not going to allow this curse to come between them any longer. Tranquility does not last long at Bergman Castle. Trouble brews almost immediately due to the disappearance of a castle servant, Mushka, played by Catherine DeMille. In fact, one of my favorite scenes in this film is when Boris Karloff is eating a pear and showing no interest in Mashka or her music. Didn't you listen? Don't you want to kiss me? A pear's the best fruit. Every time you see her, you want to be rid of me. Lots of juice in a pear. Well, your pear must be got rid of so easy. Do you hear what I say? Adam should have chosen a pear. You've got all planned, haven't you? You're going to marry her. You're going to make her your wife, your baroness. I like the feel of a pear. And when you're through with it... Well, you're not going to marry her. I'll put a stop to it. You will. How? You needn't feel so safe. 
I'll tell her you asked me up here to play for you. Her future husband, the Baron, talking with a servant, listening to her sing. I'll lie. I'll tell her worse than that. Oh, don't be foolish, child. If you were in my place, who would you choose? Colonel Hassel's niece or you? All right. Who would you choose? A sweet little innocent who plays the harp or someone who knows the other door to the black room? Someone who's seen you carry heavy things in there late at night. Spying on me. Oh, I didn't mean to. The next time we see poor Mashka is when she is being carried down the steps of the castle by Gregor. And as he passes one of his servants, he simply remarks, Good night, as if it's just normal behavior to be carrying corpses in the middle of the night. And where is he going? To the black room, of course. For it truly isn't sealed, my goblins and ghouls. In fact, it has become a crypt of sorts, a cadaver closet. With Mashka being last seen with Gregor and the discovery of her shawl, the village is aroused. They descend as an angry mob with pitchforks demanding answers. And due to this turmoil, Baron Gregor decides it may be best for him to step down and turn power over to his brother. For it is his brother Anton that has won in the popularity contest, and it's his brother Anton they admire. You've come to get rid of me, haven't you? Yes. Yeah. Wait. I know how you feel, but you must do this in an orderly way. Sure, orderly, but we get rid of it. As long as he is here, we won't be safe. But don't you understand? The government won't tolerate your taking authority into your own hands this way. The government doesn't care about us. But can't you see I'm trying to help you? Well, safety for our sisters, our wives, and our sweethearts. But my brother has done nothing. What proof have you? If you harm him, you'll answer to me. Don't interfere. We don't want to harm you. We respect you. But that butchering brother of yours has carried off our women before you ever came here. And it ends right now. As long as you all feel so kindly towards my brother, I have a suggestion. I renounce my title in favor of my brother. Are you in earnest? I am. In fact, that's why I brought my brother back. I knew you were dissatisfied. I knew you wanted somebody else to govern you. Well, you have it. Of course. This all seems a bit suspect, wouldn't you say, creepies? Now, before we go on, I would like to mention here, given that Boris Karloff does play two roles, the film does an excellent job with showcasing the differences between the two brothers. Not only does Boris portray each of the brothers uniquely, they each have their own sense of fashion and overall appearance. For one, Baron Gregor's wardrobe is disheveled and unkempt, whereas Anton is more put together and sleek. He has style and class, and as a reminder, a monocle with a handle and chain. Baron Gregor's hair matches his wardrobe as it is wild and messy, much like his personality, whereas Anton's is slick and tidy. There, of course, is an overall difference in their demeanors as well, Gregor being sharp and cutting, while Anton has a more relaxed and calm disposition. There is also one other key characteristic that separates the two, and that is Anton's lack of ability in his right arm. Due to this, it causes him to rest his arm on his chest. Now I am sure something rattling around in your brain is, why on earth would Baron Gregor give over his throne as Baron so easily? Of course, he has something up his sleeve. The black room. It is black. What's that? The pit. Our ancestors used to throw their enemies there and left them till they rotted and died. That's where Brown killed Wolfram and the legend began. Yes. 
that a woman? Yes. Mashka. And the horrible things they say about you are true. Yes. Why have you brought me here? Why not? No one will know it. And down the hole and into the cadaver closet, Anton goes. And speaking of corpses, I believe it is the perfect time, my creepies, to pay a visit to our village doctor. I invite you to join me on a trip for a spooky intermission of sorts to the morgue. Follow me, crypt dwellers, if you dare, to chat cadavers with my fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers. Together, we shall slice open and examine character actor Edward Van Sloan, an actor who specialized in playing eccentric and unusual people. Let's all go to the mark. Let's all go to the mark. Let's all go to the mark to cut ourselves a corpse. Knock, knock. Who's there? Ice cream. Ice cream who? I scream every time I see a ghost. Who is that? Oh, him? It is Vaughn, the dog ghost. You know, after watching the latest crypt flick, The Black Room, I just had to meet him, so I conjured him up for your visit here today. Oh, a little impromptu seance. How splendid. Yes. I'm a bit disappointed that I wasn't invited for the seance, but... I can never resist a surprise specter. Yes, well, I mean, there's no need to fear. He's a friendly pup and so smart. Well, I will have you know that I'm not really afraid of ghosts. I actually just really wanted to use that knock-knock gag, and I also love ice cream. Well, I don't have any ice cream to offer, but I do have some liquid nitrogen. I, I think I'll pass. Maybe next time, old chap. Okay. Enough of the chit-chat. Time is precious. So let's get this show on the road. Where would you like me to place the specimen? I see your slab is a bit cluttered. Should I slide him over to the sofa? Oh yes, that's fine. I, I have a new one on order anyway. The, the movie inspired me to redecorate my place. You know, freshen things up. My lab needs more opulence. Well, may I ask, what did you order? Well, you'll have to wait and see for the next time you arrive. (sighs) Okay. Well, I have a most excellent cadaver today, old chap. One that I simply know will make you pleased as punch. Edward Van Sloan. Oh, wow. Edward Van Sloan. Wow. What an honor. How do you do? Mr. Carl Emily feels it would be a little unkind to present this picture without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... uh, Well, we've warned you. He's a universal horror star. I have wanted to meet him for ever so long. Well, no time like today. So let's start slicing, old chap. Oh, yes. Uh, Would you mind placing this pillow behind his head? I I always want to make sure my guest is comfortable. Now, pass me my scalpel, please. Let's begin with discussing the five characteristics 
that made this particular corpse a character. Number one, he often played a doctor or expert of sorts. Number two, he's known for his thick pebbled spectacles. Number three, he is an antagonizing plan foiler. Number four, his old school theatrics. And number five, his ominous foreboding voice. Ooh, another doctor. Yeah, well, what can I say? We're everywhere. Yes, and this guy is particularly great. He may not have a huge role in the Black Room, but he's always recognizable and has been cemented in horror history. Mm -hmm. If you remember, he faced off against several of the Universal Monsters, including Dracula, Dr. Frankenstein, and the Monster, and the Mummy. Yeah, he's seen them all. He is definitely a monster expert. I wonder if he ever got into Pokemon. Gotta catch them all. I think that was probably after his time, old chap. Yeah, could be. Yes. The character he plays in the Black Room is simply known as Doctor. And it's actually uncredited, which surprised me. Hmm. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting. My eyes were drawn to him right away. I love his introduction at the beginning of the movie. I love the camera angle when the door opens and he leaves the room and the camera follows him as he slowly walks down the stairs with dozens of people watching him, longing to hear the news. Then he makes his proclamation, an heir, my lord, and a brother for him, twins. I don't know. I would recognize old Eddie anywhere. Yeah, it is quite the opening. And, Mm -hmm. you know, again, he actually had two roles in Frankenstein, which I feel is really cool being that we're doing a series on doubles. And he Mm -hmm. actually delivered the thrilling introduction we heard earlier and also played Dr. Waldman in Frankenstein. Right. He would also take on the role as Van Helsing twice, first in Dracula and then once again in Dracula's Daughter, which I must add was dissected on the cinematic crypt in episode 13, which happens to be my favorite number. Oh, see, it's perfect that he's here with us today. Yeah, it was in 1916 when he would make his film debut in a silent film, Slander, But many see his appearance in Todd Browning's 1931 Dracula as his first feature. But he actually had played Van Helsing in the 1927 Broadway production with Bela Lugosi, which helped him land the part in the film. Van Helsing, now that you have learned what you have learned, it would be well for you to return to your own country. I prefer to remain and protect those whom you would destroy. You are too late. My blood now flows through her veins. She will live through the centuries to come, as I have lived. Should you escape us, Dracula, we know how to save Miss Mina's soul, if not her life. If she dies by day, But I shall see that she dies by night. And I will have Carfax Abbey torn down stone by stone, excavated a mile around. I will find your earth box and drive that stake through your heart. Come here. Oh, very interesting. It's so wild that he was in two of the most famous flicks of universal horror history. I actually read it was only he and Dwight Fry that were both in Frankenstein and Dracula. And speaking of which, I have to admit, I kind of do want to check out that Renfield movie. It could be fun. You know what? It does look fun. I I definitely want to see it. This Cage fellow is wild. I'm kind of shocked that it has taken this long for someone to realize his Draculian persuasion. Well, 
you know, old chap, Hollywood is always slow on the pickup, so... It's true. Well, in digging up some facts on Mr. Van Sloan, I found that in 1915, he was the leading man with the Forsberg Players at the Fulton Opera House in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. This pleased me, as Lancaster is not very far from my crypt. I actually take trips there to visit the Amish countryside, and eventually, you know, I found Edward even relocated to Philadelphia for a bit, but I couldn't track down a specific time of when. Hmm, very interesting. I don't know what it is about old Pennsylvania. Something magnetic about it, I guess. You know, science. It could be its relation to Transylvania. Could be. Oh my, how could we forget Vaughn? We need to talk about him for a bit. I Mm -hmm. loved Vaughn the dog in the black room. Next to that pear-eating scene with Boris, Vaughn was my second favorite part of this film. A pear's the best fruit. Every time you see her, you want to be rid of me. Lots of juice in a pear. (laughs) Yes, the pear scene. He did not care one little bit about the words being spoken to him. He only cared about the pear. But yes, Vaughn is a superstar, and a very smart pup indeed, and definitely the hero of the film. Yeah, unfortunately I could not find much information on this old chap, except that this doggo was in four Hollywood pictures and one short film. Oh, that's great. I'm truly glad he got to share his talents with the world. Yes, I found that much of the movie I spent worried and fretting for Vaughn's well-being, especially Mm -hmm. when Gregor took out his friend Anton. There was a brief period where Vaughn was not seen or heard, and I was very concerned. I know. That's exactly what I was thinking, too. Gregor was a menace. I did not trust him with Vaughn for one second. So I was so pleased when we saw Vaughn pop up again. Yes, and he shows up in just the nick of time. I loved the moment. There's nothing like crashing a wedding. If anyone knows any reason why these two should not be joined in holy wedlock, let him speak now or forever hold his peace. Then I now pronounce you man and... Wow. I mean, if I were marrying this old creeper, I'd want the wedding to be interrupted, too. Yes. So, old chap, did you hear how old Eddie passed on? Well, unfortunately, I was not able to find the cause of death, but I did uncover that he retired in 1947 and would later pass on in San Francisco on March 6, 1964, at the age of 81. He would be interred at Boehm Cemetery, Bluebell, Pennsylvania. Huh. Death undisclosed. How mysterious. Yes. Mystifying. Well, Bluebell happens to be rather close by, so I can drop Eddie off on my way home to the crypt. Perfect. Yeah, so here's the blankie. Make sure he's tucked in nicely. Well, good night, dear Edward. Thank you for always keeping us safe from the monsters. Good night. (laughs) And now, on with the show. Welcome back, my creepies. I hope you enjoyed the brief intermission to the morgue. We return for the conclusion of my examination of the Black Room. With Baron Anton's demise in the Black Room, Gregor cleans up his appearance, slicks down his hair, and says goodbye to his right arm, for he has now become Anton. 
Something I have loved about the Double Trouble series is how often we get to see one of the twins assume the role of the other. It's quite wild. And I suppose this could also be considered an advantage, being twins. We witnessed it in our previous episode in which I uncovered the Dark Mirror, in which the twins shared a job. And then in the first episode of the series, A Stolen Life, in which the twin, much like Gregor, became her sister due to her passing. It makes me truly wonder what my other half would be like, and the chaos we would cause. Anywho, with Gregor as Anton, he prepares to wed the unsuspecting Thea, whose father is more than overjoyed about this idea. I can't say the same for Thea. Being betrothed against your will is really for the birds, goblins, and ghouls. But alas, in this story, it's how it works. As a sign of acceptance of the engagement, the father will have the supposed Baron Anton sign a contract, and well, everything seems peachy keen for Gregor, for he is pulling off this identity theft without a hitch. That is until it is time to sign the contract, because too bad, he is right-handed. I saw you sign that paper. Gregor, what have you done with your brother? Where's Anton? Have you killed him too? Don't you jump to conclusions? You have killed your brother. I don't believe I have to tell you what comes next. That's right, creepies. Murder. Baron Gregor can't have the colonel spoiling everything, and with a recent argument that the colonel had with the lieutenant that Thea so happens to be in love with, it's quite easy for Baron Gregor to frame the lieutenant for the murder. Another corpse for Baron's pile. Mwah. Apparently trials move swiftly in these parts, and the lieutenant is found guilty, and is deemed to be shot till dead. But not for quite some time, as they want him to sit and think about what he's done. With executions being planned, it seems almost fitting that a wedding shall be arranged as well. And this is where things really go off the rails, creepies. Emil! Yes, your lordship? Didn't I tell you to get rid of that dog? I tried to, your lordship, but he always comes back. Poison him. Drown him. Do anything but get rid of him. Yes, your lordship. Remember Tor, Anton's companion and doggo? Well, he re-emerges just in the nick of time. Despite Gregor insisting the demise of the dog, the servants have not answered the call. Tor has plans of his own, and I'd like to believe spent most of the film gathering evidence and creating a master plan to foil the schemes of Gregor. As the wedding bells start to ring, Tor starts to bark, which in turn alerts the villagers that something is amiss. And well, creepies, I think this is where I shall leave you. For if you would like to know if the prophecy was fulfilled, you're just going to have to watch to find out. Mwah. Writer and journalist Graham Greene wrote in The Spectator in 1935 that he found the picture The Black Room to be absurd and exciting, and gave positive remarks regarding Karloff's acting. Critics of today see the film as a hidden gem, and well, creepies, I have to agree. With a swift runtime of 78 minutes and two Karloffs, you really can't go wrong. The story does not waste any time, and truly manages to provide thrills and chills. Something in particular that I picked up on was that Karloff seems to really be enjoying the dual roles, as he plays them with such flair and zest that I feel his excitement manages to exude off the silver screen. In fact, Boris's acting portrayal was voted runner-up in August 1935 by the Screen Actors Guild for Best Performance of the Month. The Black Room started shooting on its medieval town set on Hollywood's 40 Acres backlot on the 6th of May in 1935 and would wrap 32 days later. After Boris completed The Black Room for Columbia, he would return to Universal to work on the sci-fi flick 
The Invisible Ray, in 1936, with co-star Bela Lugosi. Karloff was extremely in demand at this time due to his success in the 1931 Frankenstein. As for the director, Roy William Neal, he would rack up 110 films in his filmography, and for me, one of the most notable, and coincidentally, his last picture, Black Angel, a 1946 noir starring Dan Derrier, June Vincent, and Peter Lorre. When her husband is wrongfully convicted of murder, she teams up with the alcoholic musician played by Dan Derrier to try to sleuth out the truth. It's one you should check out. Also, despite it featuring Lon Chaney Jr., I do enjoy William Neal's 1943 picture, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, as it really is truly a Bela Lugosi picture. And in doing a bit more digging into his filmography, I have now added the 1944 film The Scarlet Claw to my watch list, featuring Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes. I leave you with one last interesting tidbit about the Black Room, Goblins and Ghouls, and it's regarding the publicity photos. Apparently, there were some photographs shot of Boris holding Catherine DeMille in bondage, with rope around her neck and shackles on her wrists. None of these photographs are ever depicted in the film, and many have surmised that reels may have gone missing, as it doesn't make sense as to why these photos were captured. It's just a little bit of a Hollywood mystery. In my next episode, I will continue my series, Double Trouble, with the 1946 mystery thriller, La Otra, starring not one, but two Dolores Del Rios. I am excited to uncover this picture, as it will mark the first non-English spoken film to be dissected on the crypt. Hope you tune in. Until then, don't be a stranger. I want to know what you think. Drop your favorite little grave digger a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for the show or a corpse you want me to dig up, let me know. You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at cinematiccrypt or reach me via postal mail. Attention Movie John, and that's M-O-V-I-E-J-A-W-N P.O. Box 20172, Philadelphia, PA 19145. I will always write back and include a personalized epitaph. Shout out to my Canadian film pal and fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating a lot of the tunes you hear on this program. Also thanks to fellow movie genre, the Hollywood hunk, Hugo Marmucci, for the rad Cinematic Crypt logo. If you can't get enough of my soothing voice, you can find me on other programs that are part of the Movie John Podcast Network, such as Best Friends Forever. Simply visit moviejohn.com under MJ Pods, and while there, make sure to subscribe to our quarterly print publication. Our upcoming spring 2023 issue features films inside the squared circle, including guest contributors such as RJ City and Effie. You don't want to miss this. Visit moviejohn.com shop. Lastly, don't forget to follow along with my escapades outside of the crypt by subscribing to my newsletter, Sunday Matinee on Substack. Night breezes seem to whisper, I love you. Birds singing in the sycamore trees. Dream a little dream of me. Say nighty night and kiss me. Just hold me tight and tell me me while I'm alone and blue as can be. It is now time to close the coffin.
And here I leave you to rest with my latest epitaph, my tombstone quote, compliments of Baron Gregor de Bergman. Adam should have chosen a pair. A reminder to all those that visit my grave that when there is a choice between an apple and a pear, one should always select the pear, for it is not just the best fruit, it also has the most juice. I now leave you in the hands of the very nice, very evil, very famous AEW superstar, Danhausen. Goodbye, film pals. Greetings, goblins and ghouls. This is Danhausen, very nice, very evil. This concludes our trip to the graveyard. Until next descent into the cinematic crypt, be sure to follow your illustrious spooky host, Betsina Belfry or Belfry, whichever you may prefer, on Twitter at Cinematic Crypt, so that you'll never miss a corpse. Yes, join us next time for another trip six feet under to pry open a coffin of Hollywood's past, or be cursed. I hope you enjoyed our horrible old movie. I was trying to get the hearse hall cleaned up for public appearances that I'll probably be making in your area soon. <laughs> and of course, I like to use Fangtastic to clean up the hearse with. <laughs>